morning. If you have a Bible, open it up to John chapter 15. That's where we'll be this morning. John chapter 15. We're going to be looking at John chapter 15, verse 18 through chapter 16, verse 4. So I hope you'll follow along with me as we do that. Uh, while you're turning there, I wanted to take you on a little trip down memory lane. Do you remember when you were in middle school and being liked by the people around you was everything? Even the people that you didn't even like, you had to be liked by them for some reason. Now, for those of us who are adults, your middle school preteen hormones have hopefully settled down. For some of you, we're still praying that that happens. Just kidding. Just kidding. Um, but so hopefully, uh, we're not as controlled by the need to be liked, but still, the need to be liked is intoxicating. The, the need, the desire to be loved and seen and respected and even popular is intoxicating, and it controls more of our lives than I think we realize. I think that this is the reason why we take things so personally in our workplace. When we don't get our way and we, we walk away angry and we say things like, they just don't respect me and they don't care about my opinion and why am I even here? And we take those things so personally because we really want to be liked and we really want to be respected. I think we do this when we meet a new person and we are so quick to lead with our most impressive uh, accomplishments and accolades and, and we, we almost like give out a resume whenever we meet someone new and I think we do that because we really want to be liked and we really want to be respected. And, and single people hold on to your chair because sometimes when we're not in a romantic relationship we'll do whatever we can to get into one, we'll go anywhere to find a potential partner, we'll do anything to attract a potential partner because we really want to be liked, and we really want to be respected. So what if I told you, in light of all this, that we could all admit, yeah, I would like to be liked. It feels nice to be respected and appreciated. So in light of that desire, what would you think if I told you there's one thing that you could do that would guarantee that the people around you would hate you? And they wouldn't just hate you, but that they would do everything they could to socially and physically harm you. Most of us would probably say, you know, not that interested in that. Great offer, not really, I'm going to pass. But what if I told you that this one thing was worth it? This one thing was so good that it was worth taking on all of the hatred of the world for. What if I told you that I had a treasure that was so beautiful that it was worth giving up everything for? What if I told you that I knew of a treasure that was so beautiful it was worth being called ugly for? And that's the point of our passage this morning. The night before his death, Jesus taught his disciples in John chapter 15 and 16 that the world would surely hate them but that it would surely, 100%, unquestionably, be worth it. If you're not a Christian, my hope for you this morning is that you would discover a treasure this morning that is worth giving everything for. 
And if you are a Christian, my hope is that you would persevere in that calling today, that the words of Christ would encourage you to press on no matter the personal cost, and to even consider laying down more of your life, more of your preferences, so that God would be more glorified in the world that hates him. The life that Christ gives is a good life, an eternal life, a joy-saturated life, a hopeful life. That's the main idea that I want to drive home to you this morning. Christ gives a hope-filled life in the midst of a hate-filled world. Christ gives a hope-filled life in the midst of a hate-filled world. We're going to divide our time this morning into two parts. First, considering the hate-filled world and then turning to consider the hope-filled life that Christ offers his people. But first, we're going to read our passage this morning. We're going to pray, and then we're going to dive in together. John chapter 15, starting out in verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done, done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. But... When the Helper comes, whom I send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for the gift of your word. We pray that you would bear great fruit from it this morning as we turn to understand how your son came to give us a hope-filled life in the midst of a hate-filled world. God, I pray that your son would be magnified before us today. I pray that we would see him for all of his beauty, that we would treasure him and worship him with everything that we are. I pray, God, that people would lay down their entire lives, would lay down all of their plans in order to see your son glorified among the nations today, God. People that have never even thought about praying to you today would lay down their complete lives to worship and treasure you because you're worth it, God. Please, would you magnify yourself to us today? Would you become our treasure? Would you open our ears and soften our hearts to hear and apply and understand and treasure your word? 
God, would you show us its truthfulness? It's for your name we pray. Amen. Christ gives a hope-filled world in the midst of a hate-filled... I said that backwards. Christ gives a hope-filled life in the midst of a hate-filled world. We start out to consider the hate-filled world where Christ describes the world's hostility for his message and for his kingdom. And he does that by describing three things that the world hates. The world hates Christians, the world hates Christ, and the world hates God. The world hates Christians because they are so different from the world. And that's where Jesus starts in verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Now, before we get any further into the passage, there's a word that I've been using a lot that we need to take a step back and define. What do we mean when we say world? What does it mean for the world to hate you? Does that mean that the ground is going to open up and swallow us because we miffed it somehow? Uh, no, whenever John uses the word world in his gospel, which we've been studying over the past six months, he usually is referring to worldly systems, individuals, and groups that are rebelling against God, that are not submitting to God's saving reign, not submitting to God's kingdom. They don't live for what God lives for. They don't love what God loves. They don't do what God does. So non-Christians who are hostile to, the, hostile to the gospel of Christ are worldly. They're not submitting to the rule and reign of King Jesus. At the same time, non-Christians who are just indifferent to the gospel of Christ are also worldly because they too are not living for the kingdom of God. They're not living for what God lives for. False religions, no matter how much social good they do, are still worldly because they're not submitting to Christ alone as king. Social media posts and TV shows that bless what God condemns and condemn what God blesses are worldly. They're not submitting to Christ. They're not submitting to God's saving reign over the universe. The world that is not submitting to God hates Christians. And why does the world hate Christians? Well, Christ goes on and he gives us a reason in verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So why does the world hate Christians? It's because Christians are not of the world. We don't look like the world. We don't do what the world does we don't live for what the world lives for. We don't love what the world loves. You know, when I was in college, I came home once for spring break or Christmas break or something like that. I was just home for a few days, so I didn't have a lot of time. So I invited all of my friends to my parents' house so I could catch up with everybody at the same time. And everybody at that party knew each other except for one guy. And so we were all talking, catching up on news from our friend group. We were reminiscing, telling inside jokes, laughing about old stories. And this poor guy that didn't know anybody else, he didn't know any of these stories or inside jokes, he just kept trying to like insert himself into the conversation. So we would be talking about something. He would just kind of say something random about himself. We would all kind of stare at him for a second. And then we would move on talking about whatever we were talking about before. 
And I feel really bad about that now. To my defense, I did try to rope him into the conversation. I did try to make him feel included, but it didn't work because he didn't have the same story that we had. He didn't have the same history that we had. He didn't know or love the things and the people that we knew and loved. He didn't fit in. And it's the same thing with Christians and the world. We don't do what the world does. We don't love what the world loves. And we don't live for what the world lives for. And why is that? Why are Christians not of the world? Is it just because we're a group of holier-than-thou people who think we've got things figured out better than the people around us? Have we simply achieved a higher and more accurate plane of understanding when it comes to spirituality and morality and purpose? No. We're not better than the world. We've just been saved from the world. Look again at verse 19. Christ says, you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Christ saved us when we were in total rebellion against him. We were once all a part of the world, but Christ saved us out of it. Christ pulled us out of that rebellion. Christ loved us when we were not loving him. Christ gives a hope-filled life in the midst of a hate-filled world by pulling us out of the hate-filled world, by rescuing us from that hate-filled world. So non-Christians... Even if you are a generally nice person, as I assume most of you probably are, you are in rebellion against the living God. You are a poor, worldly person. And your only hope is not to fix yourself or make yourself better, but to come to God who is rich in mercy and love. The God who chooses rebellious people out of the world. The world hates Christians and the world hates Christ. The world hates Christians in the same way that it hates Christ. Christ continues in verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Now, this makes sense. If a group of people hate a leader, they're probably going to have some level of animosity against his followers. And the world did indeed hate Christ. They didn't just prosecute and persecute him. They killed him. And because we are not greater than our master, we should not expect to be treated any differently than he was. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He said, far be it from us to seek a crown of honor where our Lord found only a crown of thorns. If you are adored by non-Christians who hate your king, something is wrong. Christians should not expect to be accepted by a world that rejects our Christ. And then Christ goes on and he makes an interesting comment in verse 22. He says, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Now, what is Christ meaning there? Does he mean that if he had never come, then no one would ever have any sin? If that was the case, there was no reason for Christ to come. 
Remember back at the beginning of John's gospel, in John chapter 1, when John the Baptist declared, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So Christ came to take away sins, not to cause sins, not to invent sins. So he's not talking about sin generally, as if, if he never came, then no one would be guilty, no one would be accountable. But he's talking about the particular sin of rejecting him. The people that he has come, the people that he has spoken to, have seen, have heard, have seen proof that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and those who walk away rejecting him are guilty. Their blood is on their own hands. And friends, today we will all be held accountable for our response to the Son of God. You can continue in your rebellion and sin, and you can continue to play church and pretend like everything is okay or you can come to Christ confessing your sin and believing in him for salvation. You will be held accountable for your response to the Son of God. We don't have time to play church. We don't have time to pretend like everything is good. We don't have time to, to put this off. You will be held accountable. You are guilty of sin. You have no excuse for your sin. But Christ came to offer hope. It goes even deeper than that, though. The world hates Christians because they hate Christ, and the world hates Christ because they hate God. Look at verse 23. Whoever hates me, Christ says, hates my Father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. You cannot love God without loving Christ. Today it's popular and appealing to say that you worship the God of Abraham apart from Jesus. You like God, whether the God of Abraham or just the God of the idea of God generally, but not want to have anything to do with Jesus. But Christ says here that whoever hates him hates God. So if you're interested in God but not a lover of Christ, you are a hater of God. The God of Abraham has spoken here in John chapter 15, and he has said that if anyone hates him, they hate God. There is only one God, and there is only one way to that God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 14, 6, which we read just two weeks ago here, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The world hates Christians because they hate Christ. They hate Christ because they hate God. They are of the world. They are opposed to God's saving reign. They're living for themselves or for their career or for a cause, but they're not living for Christ. They don't love what God loves. They don't do what God does. They don't live for what God lives for. They are enemies of God. Christ ends this section on the hate-filled world with a summarizing comment and a quote from the Old Testament. He says, But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. And I think he does that there. I think he's quoting from the Old Testament there for two reasons. First of all, he's showing that the hatred of the world was not a surprise to God. The cross was not a shock to Christ, it's why he came. But I think he's also doing this 
to throw a little bit of shade at his opponents. You see, Christ's opponents were religious leaders who believed and who claimed that they fulfilled all of the commands of the law. And Christ is saying here, well, the, com the commands of the law are to love others and love God. And you're not loving others, you're hating others. You're not loving God, you're hating me. They're not fulfilling the demands of the law, but they are fulfilling the predictions of the law, which said that false teachers would rise up who would hate God and would lie to the people of God. So he's throwing shade at his opponents. Let's look at that, that verse that he's quoting. Let's look at it in the Old Testament. Read the whole thing. It's Psalm 69, verse 4. This is the verse that Christ is quoting. This is how he summarizes his ministry. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal, must I now restore? Mighty are those who would destroy me. Christ had a great army of opponents allied against him, conspiring for his murder. All of the religious authorities, the Roman Empire and army, and all of the massive crowds gathered in Jerusalem for the Passover, a mighty force allied together to destroy him. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. When Christ was put on trial, as we'll see a few weeks from now in John chapter 18, the crowds could not produce a legitimate accusation against him. They, they made some phony charges that, that, that didn't stick. Because Christ was perfectly righteous, perfectly good. He always obeyed the law of God. He always loved God. He always loved others. He was attacked with lies. And then the verse ends with a plea for justice. What I did not steal, must I now restore? I didn't do the crime, do I have to do the time? Well, friends, Jesus Christ answered that question by willingly walking to the cross and paying for the crime that he did not commit. When Jesus Christ was crucified, he was not murdered for his own crimes because he didn't have any. He was killed for our crimes. He was killed for our lust. He was killed for our lies. He was killed for our impatience. He was killed for our selfishness. He was killed for our hatred. Christ died for the world that hated him. He died for those who were in rebellion against him. He restored what he did not steal. And we were the ones who had stolen it. So that if any of us put our faith in Christ, repenting of our sins and submitting to him as our king, believing that he is our only savior, he gives us new life. He rescues us from the hate-filled world. He gives us a hope-filled life.
Friends, you can never be good enough to earn God's love, but Christ has earned God's love, and he offers it freely to anyone who puts their faith in him. So today, I want to invite you to to find what the world cannot offer, to live for something better than all of the love and affection of the world. You will never be good enough, but Christ is. So stop trying, stop striving to impress other people, and rest in the one who has already perfectly impressed God you will never be good enough but Christ is so come to him Christ offers a hope filled life in the midst of a hate filled world and what does that life look like well Christ goes on in the rest of this passage to describe four ways that Christians are comforted in a hate filled world Four reasons to have a hope-filled life in the midst of a hate-filled world. The first reason, comforted Christians are spirit-helped. Look at verse 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Now I want you to notice there, this verse starts with a very big, important, beautiful word. But. So there's all of this bad news about how the world will hate you and persecute you and slander you and lie about you and even kill you, but hope is here. Hope is here. And these promises that we're going to talk about, these ways that Christ comforts his people in the midst of a hate-filled world, these promises are for anyone who trusts in Christ. Trusting in Christ isn't just a get-out-of-hell-free card. It totally transforms the way you live. Christ doesn't just save you and say, good luck, see you on the other side. Christ is with you every step of the way. And here he just gives four promises to comfort his people. The first of them is that comforted Christians are spirit-helped. Christians have the gift of the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us. And the Spirit of God is inside of you to encourage you, to remind you of the truth about Christ every day. So when you are content to walk in sin, the Spirit of God is inside of you to shake your bones and to say, don't do it, stop sinning. It's not worth it. Live for a treasure that the world could never take away. And when you're feeling discouraged by your sin, when you're feeling like, oh man, I've messed up completely, God doesn't love me, God could never love me. I'm such a mess. The Spirit of God lives inside of you to say, you are a mess. And that's precisely how God loves you, by saving you in the midst of that. The Spirit of God is inside of you to encourage you, to bear witness to you about Christ. Christ doesn't expand much on the Spirit's ministries here in verse 26 because he's already talked a lot about it in chapters 14 and 15. So if you want to learn more, then go back and read John chapter 14 and 15 today, or you could go back and listen to Jared's sermon from two weeks ago on the Pillar website. But for now, he just comforts his disciples with the truth that the Spirit of God comes to bear witness, to encourage Christ's people. And the Holy Spirit doesn't just come to remind you of these truths so that you feel warm and fuzzy inside. The Spirit of God reminds you of these truths so that you can share them. 
And that's the second promise that Christ gives to his people. The second way that Christ gives a hope-filled life in the midst of a hate-filled world. Comforted Christians are empowered to proclaim. The Holy Spirit empowers God's people to speak up, to bear witness to the truth. Look at verse 27. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So Christ commands the 12 disciples to bear witness or to testify. And why? Because you have been with me from the beginning. They've seen the truth play out in front of them. And so Christ gives them a command to share that truth with the people around them. Imagine if you walked outside today and you saw someone commit a horrendous crime like murder. Let's just say that you saw your neighbor, who you don't really like, in cold blood, broad daylight, right in front of you, kill your best friend. You would probably want to speak up. There might be some legal situations where you are required to speak up, Maybe you're given a subpoena or, or called before a judge. But even if you weren't, even if you weren't being required to speak up, wouldn't you want to? Wouldn't you want to make sure that justice was done? Wouldn't you want to make sure that this horrible person who killed your friend was, was punished and kept from ever harming someone else again? Wouldn't you want to speak up? And if you did speak up, your words would have great power because you're not just blowing smoke. Yeah, I don't like that guy. He probably did it. But you're speaking to what you've witnessed. The words of a witness have great power. And therefore, witnesses have an obligation to speak the truth. Well, friends, if you are a Christian, you are a witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You haven't just heard about it. You've experienced its power in your own life. You don't just believe that Jesus is alive. You know that Jesus is alive. You've seen him working in your own life. You are a witness, and witnesses are commanded to testify. All around us, people are going through the fast lane to hell. Our non-believing friends and coworkers and family members and neighbors are of the world. They're in rebellion against God. And the debt for what they have stolen must be repaid. We can offer them the hope that Christ repaid what he did not steal. We can offer them the hope that Christ died for sinners. We can invite them to discover a treasure worth giving everything for. And Christ is very clear in this passage. If you speak up, you will be hated. Persecution begins when proclamation goes out. If you speak up, your neighbors will hate you. If you evangelize your neighbors, they will hate you. But if you do not evangelize your neighbors, you're proving that you hate them. When we stay silent for fear of looking weird or being that Jesus guy or offending someone, we are saying that we value being liked more than we value eternity, more than we value God's glory. We're sacrificing eternity for a popularity contest as if we're in middle school again. Christ did not run from the world that hated him. He endured the worst that it had to offer, 
murder on a cross so that he might save some. And we are to do the same. We endure the worst that this world has to offer so that we might see some get saved. And this message is not just a command, it's a comfort. Christ doesn't just give you a command and say, yeah, figure it out, get it done. With every command in Scripture, God gives the grace to his people to fulfill it. And that's what he's doing here. Look back at verse 26. The Holy Spirit comes to bear witness to you so that you can bear witness to others. You cannot evangelize in your own strength, but the Holy Spirit empowers you to be an evangelist. You might say today, I don't know enough to share with my neighbors. I'm not smart enough to share with my neighbors. I'm not persuasive enough to share with my neighbors. No, of course you're not. Your neighbors have sin-stained hard hearts. You can't convince them. But God the Holy Spirit is inside of you. And he goes before you. And he will give you the words to say. He will give you the boldness to say them. And he is the one that can change hard hearts and bring sinners to new life in him. Christ's spirit is the one that gives life to new spirits the same way that it gave life to us. And let me just tell you one thing. I'm going to tell you exactly how to do this so that you don't have any excuses. This week, the person that the Lord has put on your mind, go up to them and start a conversation this way. Hey, insert name here. This Sunday is Easter. What does that mean to you? What does that mean to you? And then you can, you can hear what it means to them. Maybe they'll tell you something about family traditions. Maybe they'll tell you something about a bunny and eggs and chocolate. Maybe they'll even say something about how Jesus died and rose again. And then you get to share what it means to you. You get to share the good news that Christ came to the sin-stained world that hated him, that Christ died for sinners like you, and that Christ gloriously rose from the dead. And he rose from the dead because he was innocent of every crime. Death could not hold him. Death could not force Christ to do the, crime, the time because he did not do the time. You can share that with your coworkers and your neighbors and your family members and your friends this week. So go out and do it. And then if they want to learn more, you can say, well, you can come to our church this Easter. Give them an invite card. Make sure you pick some of those up at the invite table. We're not going to have any use of them after this week, so make sure you pick up a bunch of them and blitz your neighborhood with them. But before we move on, I want to point out one more thing. Christ describes his disciples as people who are hated in this passage, but they are hated for Christ, not for being jerks. When Christ was on trial... No one could bring any legitimate accusation against him because he was only controlled by love all of the time. Love for God and love for others. Be known by your love for Christ and your love for others so that when you share this good news that Christ is risen from the dead, no one would have any legitimate charge to lay against you. Be known 
by your love for Christ more than you are known by your political persuasions or your career or your opinion about vaccines or no vaccines or your opinions about how to educate your children. Be known by your love for Christ and your love for others more than you're known by anything else. The Apostle Peter wrote about this in his epistle, his first epistle in 1 Peter 4, 14 to 16. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So that's exactly the promise that Christ made in verse 26. You will be hated by the world, but the helper is in you. The spirit of God rests upon you to help you, to encourage you, to remind you of truths. But, Peter continues... Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let, no one be, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. We want to be known for love for Christ and love for others so that we never suffer as anything but a Christian. And friends, there is no room for pride in this. The only reason you're a Christian is because God chose you out of the world. You didn't figure this out. He saved you. So let's, in humility and love, go and tell this good news that Christ came to save sinners and rose from the dead. Third comfort for Christ's people. Comforted Christians are empowered to persevere. God will never abandon you. No matter how hard the road gets through all of this persecution, God will never abandon you. Look at 16.1. Christ says, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. You could never... Hold on to Christ on your own. The world is too wicked and the hatred is too hot. You could never hold on to Christ on your own, but Christ is holding on to you. God will not allow his people to fall away. Jesus put it this way in John 10, 28. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. The almighty God who created and sustained and preserves and rules over the universe is holding on to you, Christian. He will preserve his people. No one can snatch him out of Christ's hand. You cannot out God's grace because it is too powerful. No one can snatch you from the hand of Christ. Hatred and persecution and slander and nakedness and sword cannot separate you from the love of God that is yours in Christ Jesus. Not because you're strong enough, but because he is strong enough. And there's one more thing I want to point out to you in verse 4. This promise, all of these promises, the promise of the Holy Spirit, the promise that you will have power to proclaim, the promise that you will have power to persevere, all of these promises are given to you. They were given to the original 12 disciples, but they're also given to you. In verse 4, Christ says that I have said all these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you. So these promises are for when Christ is not with his disciples. 
And friends, Christ is not with his disciples today. He is risen and ascended to the right hand of the Father. He is sitting in glory. He is not here, which means that these promises belong to us because of what he did on the cross. One final promise. At the end of chapter 16, Jesus says this, that comforted Christians have peace. John 16, 33. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. I cannot guarantee that the world will love you. I cannot guarantee you safety or success or health and wealth. But I can guarantee peace through it all because Christ has promised it and because he has overcome the world. Christ gives a hope-filled life in the midst of a hate-filled world. Let's hold on to that hope today. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the treasure that it is to us. We pray, God, that we would believe it, that we would trust your power to hold on to us. God, we pray that seeing the glories of the hope that you bring us, we would lay down everything and we would endure even the hatred of the world for you, to know you and make you known. God, for those of you, those here that don't know you, I pray that you would choose them out of the world today. I pray that you would shake them in their sins, that you would wake them up to their need for you, and that they would see, God, that you are theirs, not because they're good enough, but because Christ is, and because Christ died. God, I thank you for the good news that Christ died for sinners and rose again. I pray, God, that we would believe and treasure that truth until your son comes again. And it's for his name we pray. Amen.